have given up on the whole notion. Maybe you've been there, done that, tried that, fell on your face. Or maybe it's by now, it's already the fourth. If you started with a New Year's resolution on the first, you've already failed. You've already blown it. So what's the use? Has that been your experience with New Year's resolutions in the past? This year, I will. But it doesn't work out. You don't keep up. You don't keep going. You're not able to stick with that best of intention, which may well have been a very good intention. It just doesn't stick. It just doesn't work. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with us? How can I do what's right? Well, the answer is really the same answer I gave the kids. There's, there's so, it's not unusual to be tempted. It's not unexpected that we would easily be led astray. Think of it. The audacity, the uh, Jewish word chutzpah, the gall, the, the brazenness, the boldness of the enemy, Satan, that he would come to, to Jesus himself and dare to tempt him the way that he does. But he does. Because he knows that in Jesus' humanity too, Humanity is vulnerable. Now, Jesus is like us in all ways, and yet without sin, he holds up to that temptation. But in that passage that shows that, he shows us something far better than making a list of the things that I'm going to do or not going to do. By the way that he stands against the temptation of what not to do, he also suggests for us something that is very good to do. At an initial obvious level that even the kids could pick up this morning, but there's something more there as well. And that's what I want us to spend a little time digging into this morning. I want us in Luke chapter 4 to, to see things differently. See things differently than they're just presented to us because things are presented to us. The, the, uh, the ideas of the realm are marketed to us perspectives are are thrown at us and we can accept them as they are we can take them in as they're presented we can buy off and buy in or we can see things differently from another perspective you, you know i've been i've been studying a lot of uh, about the whole notion of prophecy and the prophetic and what was it that the prophets were doing that also leaks into the new testament and and uh, the essence of it is in remembering what god has done and also anticipating what God has promised, what God will do. The prophets looked back and the prophets looked ahead and from both of those perspectives they brought that to bear into the present life. And so we do what we do today. Prophetic living would be living based on what God has done for me and what God will yet do that we can count on, that we can trust in, bearing those, those coming to bear in the present. And Jesus remembers what will be A prophetic living involves seeing what is not yet. Seeing what will be rather than the reality that is. An alternate reality, if I may. And and so what what Jesus is demonstrating for us here in Luke chapter 4 is, quite simply, seeing things differently. Well, let's get into the the, the first... uh, the first move of the story is the, is the temptation of Christ in, in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. And in that temptation, uh, Jesus shows us to live differently, 
to live differently with a different perspective, a different framework, a different direction. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all of this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, if you are, and let's just assume for the, for the purpose of argument that you are, that's the way that it's phrased in the Greek, assuming that you are the Son of God, then Go ahead, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He, God, will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He said, you can throw yourself down. The angels are going to catch you, because God will not let any harm come to you. That's what His Word says. You want to quote, quote Scripture? Satan says, I know Scripture, and he throws one back at him. And Jesus answered him and said, you shall not put the Lord, no, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, we might think that opportune time would come much later. I actually think it comes further into this chapter. But here we are. So in this temptation, and it's, and it's obvious before us, it is written, it is written, it is said. Three times he references back to the Old Testament, and he marks it off so that we'll know that he's quoting the Old Testament. We'll know that he's answering the enemy. He's answering temptation by relying on God's Word. You know, there's interesting parallels here. There's a 40 days in the wilderness to the 40 years in the wilderness of Israel. Jesus is the perfect Israel. Jesus is the perfect son. Also, I will bring my son out of Egypt, it says in Matthew. Jesus, Jesus like Israel, was brought up out of Egypt. And Jesus, like Israel now, is, is tempted in the wilderness to trust God or not. The stones. If you're the son of God, assuming that you are, well, you're hungry. There's these stones, but if you're the Son of God, if you're the very Creator, you could command these stones to turn into bread. And these stones kind of look like little individual loaves of bread, like bread rolls. Think along those terms, little round stones, little round bread rolls. They kind of look like that. It must have been enticing. But there's more than just, are you hungry? You could make some bread. There's, the temptation involves the prerogatives of sonship. Well, you're God's son. You deserve better than this. Have you ever had that echo around? You've probably never been in a place where you were out on a hike and the, 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 the temptation came into your mind, hey, why don't I turn some of these stones into bread? That probably has never occurred to you. But the temptation has. You have had echo around in your mind the prerogatives of sonship. I'm a child of God. 
If God loves me, then shouldn't I have better than this? If God loves me, if I'm really God's child, if God cares for his own, then shouldn't my circumstances be better than they are? Have you had that one? Sure you have. Sure we have. Yeah, that goes around. We ought to have because of who we are. God should show himself. It should be different. It shouldn't be like this. You deserve better than this. Even even McDonald's caught on to that, right? You deserve a whatever. You deserve a break today and you fall down and break your leg. What is it supposed to be like that? The prerogatives of sonship. Entitlement versus hardship. If God loves us, then why this and this and this and that? Yeah? And Jesus answers much more than simply, I'm hungry, but I'm not going to eat the rock. Jesus is trusting himself to God, and he's hearkening back to the, to the Old Testament when God provided for them manna in the desert. That, yeah, they were in the wilderness. They had nothing. And not only did they have manna to eat, did God provide bread for them, but their shoes never wore out in 40 years. God provided for them miraculously. This is a test. Do I trust God to provide for me? Will I be content with what God has provided and the situation and the circumstances that he's placed me in, or will I insist on more because I deserve more? I'm a child of God. What about the authority and the glory? Satan says, I have all this. It's been given to me, and I give it to whoever I want. Well, let's not forget that God's in charge. But Jesus doesn't pull that card out. Jesus could have quoted many verses about the sovereignty of God over all. He doesn't pull that one out. There's a bigger issue here. It's not just about who's going to have the authority. Jesus knows. As Psalm 2 says, that the Lord in heaven laughs. Why do the nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed? The Lord in heaven laughs. He says, I have set my King on my holy hill of Zion. God's going to put his king on his throne. God is not worried. That's not what Jesus quotes. This whole authority and glory, what it is that we would like to have. He says, devil, the devil says, it's mine to give, and Jesus answers him. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Him only shall you, shall you serve. It's not a matter of who's going to be king. Jesus is going to be king. It's who he's going to serve along the way to get there. That's where he draws the line. Don't we often get tempted as well in uh, the means to the goal? The goal might be good. The goal might be worthy. But there you are pushing away at work. And something comes along, maybe it's, maybe it's a sale, maybe it's a communication, maybe it's something you're going to say that isn't quite so, promised but it isn't going to be kept, maybe it's something you're going to conceal that in fairness you should reveal. I don't know what it is, but, but, but this is just the way the world is. This is just the way things are, this is just the way things are done, and yeah, you've You'll get ahead if you, if you climb over somebody else and too bad for somebody else, but that's just the way it is. That's just the way the world works. And here we are living in the world. We've got to get along in the world the way the world works, right? And Jesus draws the line. He says, no. 
He will be king, but not his way, not the enemy's way. He says, I will in every way serve the Lord my God in everything that I do and all the things that are set before me. He is not doubting God's future, but he has no intention of, of, of sacrificing what's right on the altar of expediency to get there. Authority and glory is offered to us, promised to us. If you will just do this, everybody does this, this, but this is not our way because of who we are and who we serve. Throw yourself down. Okay, he says. Okay. This one Jesus ought to go for because he came to die anyway, didn't he? But it's all on God's timetable. God is in control of this. Not even Jesus. Oh, and if you throw yourself down here, the crowds are going to see it. Man, it's going to be great. And, and everybody will know you're the Messiah. Everybody will see God's hand at work. Do something spectacular. Throw it out there. Take a chance. And then God is going to move and all, everybody's going to acclaim and see who you really are. In fact, doesn't the Bible say that? Didn't Psalm, didn't Psalm uh, what was it? Psalm 91 Verses 11 and 12, didn't Psalm 191 say that he would have his angels look after you? Oh, but you skipped a phrase. They will keep you in all your ways. This, again, is that suggestion that nothing bad can happen. Nothing bad can happen to God's children. God will protect you from any evil he has to. No, God will keep you in all of your ways. Jesus said to his disciples, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one is able to take them out of my hand. And my Father, who is greater than all, gave them to me, and nobody is able to take them out of my Father's hand. They are safe. You're in the hand of Jesus. You're in the hand of God the Father. You are safe. He tells that to his disciples, and every one of them died a martyr's death. Think about it. He tells that to his disciples, and every one of them would pay for their faith in Christ with their lives, and yet not a one of them could be taken out of the Father's hand. He will keep you in all of your ways. No matter where it leads you, no matter what cost your faith brings, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Remember those three friends of Daniel in that furnace back in Daniel chapter 3? He didn't keep them out of the furnace. And yet there was a fourth one, like the Son of God, in the furnace with them. He will keep my, my confidence in God is not that He is going to keep me from every bit of trouble. My confidence in my Savior is He is going to keep me through any of it. He will keep me in all my ways, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that's actually good news for us because we don't have to pretend that all of life is good then. We don't have to pretend that we have got it all together and that, yes, I'm good and I'm walking with God and God's here with me because look how good I am and look how well I've got it together. i got my tie on. I've got my new sweater. Don't I look good? I guess not. Okay, well, we'll try something else next week. But I don't have to pretend 
that it's all good. Sometimes it isn't good. Sometimes the bottom drops out, and yet God will keep me there. That's his promise. He will keep you in all your ways, and don't let the devils short sell it or sugarcoat it and make it themes like make it seem like if everything isn't good, then somehow God has let you down. It's like the old the old footprints poem. It's in those times where you only see the one set of footprints in the sand, that those were the time when the Lord was carrying him. It's interesting how Jesus answers these temptations. He answers by the word. God's promises to provide and keep for them. He doesn't rationalize. He doesn't say, well, God would want me to be healthy, you know, so I should, I should eat, right? God would want me to exercise dominion as, as the true Adam. God would want me to exercise dominion over those stones. He doesn't rationalize all the reasons why he should do what the enemy suggests. He rather trusts, lives by God's word. You know, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It doesn't mean that the word of God feeds you what it means. Now, the word of God does feed us spiritually. Don't don't let go of that. But it also means that I live by the faithfulness of God's promise. I will live. I have eternal life because God has given it to me and he has promised. It's not now up to me. God has given me life. He will keep me. I live because of him. I live by his word. I live by his promise and his faithfulness to keep it. No matter when the bottom drops out. Even then, when I am hanging by a thread, I still know that my God has me. I live by God's word, not my own ability to hang on. In the midst of temptation, live differently. Don't buy into the enemy's invitations to rationalize. Don't buy into the enemy's, enemy's invitation toward entitlement that God should treat you better than this. Trust God instead. Trusting God's word, then you can respond with God's word to, and do just what I told the kids to do. Read this week. You know, coats and, and, and cans are still piling in from last week when we said, this is what the Word tells us to do, so we're going to do it. We're going to share food with those who are hungry. We're going to take one of our tunics if we have two, and we're going to give it to one who has none. And, and you brought them last week, and you're bringing them this week. To step into God's Word again, this week, start your day reading God's Word. And as you start your day reading God's Word, I don't care if it's five minutes, I don't care if it's an hour, but as you start your day reading God's Word, say, God, give me something here that I need to meditate on through the day. Write that verse down. It might be half a verse. It might be a whole verse. Write it down and hide it. Hide it into your heart. Because if you plant it there, if you bury it there, it will rise up. If you bury it there, it will rise up in new life in you. God's word will do that. Let's step into the example that our Lord sets before us. When we live differently, and he calls us to live differently, and as we live differently, expect opposition. 
Jesus stands, he declares, he declares a word that they're not eager to hear. You know, it's funny, you do scripture reading in the midst of a church service. Sometimes we'll do that, we'll have in the midst of songs, we'll, we, we pray, we, we, we have a scripture reading here, and it's not an especially dramatic part of the service. This is probably the most dramatic scripture reading ever in a church or synagogue service. What Jesus does here, beginning in verse uh, Let's see, where are we? Round about verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. A report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. The crowds are catching on, and they're following him. He didn't have to jump from the temple to do it. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, probably just chance. Probably just a coincidence. He's given Isaiah to read. And he unrolls the scroll and he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he closed the book. Rolled up the scroll, really. Gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And every eye in the room is on him. Why did he read that? That wasn't the reading for the day. It, was, it said in the bulletin it was supposed to be. The, why did he read that? And what does he mean today this scripture is fulfilled? In your hearing. This is a messianic scripture. This is what the Messiah comes to do. What does he mean? Who does he think he is? They marveled at the words that were coming from his mouth. Isn't, but who is Isn't this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. We've heard you've been healing other people. Do it here. Do it now. Show us something marvelous. Show us something wonderful. Entertain us for a while. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three, three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, outside of Israel. She sent to a Gentiles, and there she sent to a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them were cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. Again, outside the circle of God's people, the Syrian guy is the one who Elisha heals of his leprosy. When they heard that, everyone in the synagogue was filled with wrath. They were marveling. They said, this guy's pretty cool, and he reads well. But when he said that, uh-oh, uh-oh, he lost them. He lost an audience like that. Why? Remember that bit about entitlement? Remember that bit about we're God's people. Things should be better for us. We're the special ones. We're the one God. God don't really like those. We're God's people. God favors us. God's got the stuff for us. So pour out the healings here. He says, wait a minute. A prophet, when he says a prophet is not received in his hometown, 
That term is bigger than town. He picks up on that because they use the, they use the term when they referred to Capernaum somewhere else and here, but it referred to one's homeland. It referred to one's home country also. And he extends it that way. He says the Messiah has come to Israel, but Israel as a whole is not going to receive him. John captures that in chapter 1. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to as many as receive him, to them he gives the power, the right, the authority to become children of God. It's not the ones who were born descended from Abraham who are in. It's the ones who believe in Jesus who are in. It's not because you were born in a Christian family. It's not because you, you happen to be one of those who came along to church that you're in. None of us are in except by Jesus Christ. Jesus is our life. We live by the word of God and his promises concerning his son. His son who died for us. His son who gave us life. It's not about us. It's about him. And man, talk about a way to make a bunch of religious people unhappy. Tell them their religiosity has got nothing to do with it. Tell them that their religion in all of its forms is empty, is meaningless. And they're actually going to reject God's provision for him. And he says, this is true now, and it's been true in the past. Just as you rejected all the prophets before, so you will reject me also. And he's going to tell them that along the way. And each time he does, it's going to make them angry. But it doesn't mean that he doesn't say it. He expects opposition. But, you know, one of the keys to Jesus' victory here in this chapter is not only the Word of God, but you know how it kept saying that Jesus is full of the Spirit in verse 1? He came, He returned from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. He declares in verse 18 that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Most High has anointed me. His victory is in word and spirit. We dare not make our faith simply a matter of propositions held. We dare not make our faith and how we will live for God simply a matter of I believe the right stuff. God has given us his spirit. God has given us himself. And Jesus returning by the spirit, by the power of the spirit, full of the spirit, the spirit upon him is able to stand in the midst of opposition. He expects opposition and yet he doesn't withdraw. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't avoid the encounter or the conflict. But he's speaking. He's guided in the spirit. You say, well, yeah, he's Jesus. He's God in the flesh. I can't compete with that. We're not competing with him. No, no, he's our savior, not our competition. And he's the one who Hebrews says has gone before and who brings us along. So as, yeah, this, may, this may seem like I'm saying too much, but as Jesus is full of the Spirit, so a believer in Jesus Christ is full of the Spirit, or can be, can be. We are indwelt by the Spirit of the living God, but that doesn't mean we are full of the Spirit. Ephesians 5 says, don't be drunk with wine, influenced by, and have it affect your behavior, but instead be filled with the Spirit, so that you're under the influence of God's Holy Spirit, so that the Holy Spirit is affecting what you say and what you do. That's the image. We are indwelled by the Spirit, but we're told to be filled by the Spirit. We are told not to quench the Spirit. 
And quenching the Spirit refers to how we respond to God's Word. The, spirit, the spiritual life, the Christian life, is not simply about doing the do's and not doing the don'ts. It's not about simply knowing words and precepts and principles and then doing them. It's a matter of yielding and walking by the power of the Holy Spirit. The, the, in terms of walking with God, the Word of God will never be contrary to the character of God. You can probably, if you search, if you want to go your way, you can find a verse that will back you up, just like the devil did. But the Word of God will never violate the character of God. The, 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 the Word is given to us as revelation, that we might know God himself. And by knowing God, we might walk with him. We might live with him. We might have this fellowship with God through his spirit that I live in connection with, in relationship with Jesus, even though he's not on my Facebook. I think he reads it, but he's not there. And yet... I can have by the Spirit of God if I cultivate, if I nurture that relationship with Him so that I not only know the Word about God, but I know the character. And that comes from stepping, and that's why I want you to bring cans and coats. That's why I want you to just take that next step of obedience and, and read His Word, make, the, make a habit of it, and, and hide some of it away, plant it within. Because it will do. It'll, it'll, it'll show you something about God. Don't, don't just memorize the verses that tell you what to do. Memorize the verses that tell you something about God. And then as you not only know what he has said, but as you know him, you'll walk with him in a way that's maybe new and different than it has been before. Expect opposition. In the midst of resisting temptation, expect opposition. And one of some of the things we learned from that, don't soft sell. Jesus doesn't make it easier for them to hear him. Jesus doesn't make it easier for them to embrace him. He actually makes it harder. He draws the line. You say that I'm Joseph's son. No, no, I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. What are you going to do with that? The other thing we learned from this, all the people in Israel, and yet the prophet Elijah is sent out of town. All of the lepers, and yet Elisha heals a Syrian instead. What is Jesus saying? The most likely people to embrace him, the most likely people to believe in Jesus were the ones right there in Nazareth, the ones who knew him, the, the ones who had seen his life and know that it backed up what he was saying. Certainly the most likely people to believe in Messiah were the people of Israel, the sons and the daughters of Abraham. How many of you are Jewish? Anybody? We don't have, now, now, there ought to be some. That's a pity, really. That's. But the point certainly is that, that, that most of you are not Jewish. Most of you are like the Syrian. Most of you are like that widow in Sidon. Most of you are unlikely. You know, that's good news for people around you who are unlikely. The problem is, we who were unlikely, why in the world would God save us? Why in the world would I believe? And yet I did. And now we get into part of this holy huddle and 
we set ourselves apart from the other unlikelies all around us. And, oh, woe be upon us if we dare to consider ourselves better than the unlikely people around us who you would say they will never believe in Jesus. You did? One of the points that Jesus makes here, it's not those who are most likely that would receive him, it's those who were least likely. They're the ones that are actually going to believe on him. So for you and I, what do we do with that? Go to the unlikely. Reach out to the unlikely. Reach out to people that you don't really expect are going to come to faith in Christ. But be ready. Be ready in that unlikely moment, in that unexpected opportunity. Paul tells Timothy, difficult times are coming. But he says, be ready in season and out of season to give an answer. Be ready in season. It's out of season. We don't expect anything to grow. I went out yesterday just, just because I was reading this. I'm thinking about that. Huh. I went out to my cherry tree. Guess what? No cherries. No cherries at all. Well, it's out of season. You didn't expect there to be any cherries on the tree, did you? If I told you, I'm going to go check the cherry tree, you said, he's silly. But could there have been cherries? Could God grow cherries on my cherry tree in January? Could he? Sure he could. Well, he didn't. You know, I really wasn't expecting it. There's not a promise in the book that talks about cherries in January. But I am told to be ready with the gospel in season and out of season. Because with the gospel, I know God will bear fruit where it's not expected. I know it because he did it right here. And if you knew me when I knew me, you wouldn't expect me to be any different then than now. I'm not saying it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great whole pile of glory here, but, but we're a long ways from where we were. And you can identify with that. You know that God will save those who are unlikely because he saved you. Share that with somebody else. That's what it is to be on mission. That's what it is to pursue God's purpose as Jesus does. I'm not going to read the last, uh, last move in the chapter, verses 31 to 44. I will say this about it. There, Jesus goes on from Nazareth, and he's traveling around Galilee, and, and here in this town or there in that, that he's healing many. And you know all those things that Satan offered him? They're all being vindicated. He is proclaiming liberty to the captives, the captives of the enemy himself. He's, he's giving sight to the blind. He's setting people free from demons. He's setting people free from, who have been enslaved by the enemy who offered to give him authority. Jesus didn't need authority from him. Jesus takes it because of who he is. And yet, he focuses on his mission that before me, even when things are good. And the people sought him out in verse 42, and they came to him, and they would have, a, have kept him right there for us. We've got a good thing going here. Let's build on it. Let's keep it for ourselves. Let's grow this thing. And Jesus says, no. I must preach the good news of the kingdom to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. That's why Ruth is working with the youth group in Harare, Zimbabwe, rather than working with the youth group here. That's why she's working with street kids on the streets of Harare rather than in downtown Vancouver or Portland. Because there are others too. And unlikely as it is that we could make any difference in this broken, fallen world, God will do his glorious work. And he's chosen to do it through us. I want you this year, 
I want you this year to see things differently. What seems to be bread might be a stone. What seems to be an opportunity might actually be a trap. What seems to be success for you might be a distraction. In troubles, we could see troubles simply as why would God do this? In a seeming lack of blessing, we could say, why doesn't God? We could be tempted to be quiet when we should speak up. We could be tempted to speak up when we should hold our peace. Times will be tested by our integrity of being honest and doing what's right instead of what's profitable or instead of doing what seems pleasurable for a season. But in contentment with a God-given ministry, whether it's a mom with her kids, whether it's in a vocation, in a workplace where God has set you in a mission field there round about you, surrounded by unlikelies that he has given you, Will I be content with that? Will I trust God there? Will I see this thing that is around me with God's perspective or the enemy's? What seems to be mere stones may actually be bread. You know, our Lord Jesus Christ, by not serving himself, by not answering the enemy and taking for himself bread from the rocks, glory the enemy's way, by not taking for himself, but rather giving himself for us. You see the turnaround? You see the see things differently? The one who, was, who is the rock of our salvation is the rock of our salvation because he became for us the bread of life. The stone, if I may, became bread. And he did that not because he bowed to the enemy's temptation. He did that because he kept to the mission that God had set before him and who he was to be. The rock of our salvation became the bread of life. That's what we celebrate at this table. That's why I'm going to invite those who are serving to come forward now. And as we, as we, as we close this service in worship, we're going to close it around the table Reminding ourselves that I will not find my bread by insisting that God change my circumstances. I will find the bread to nourish my soul and even to give eternal life in the rock of ages who gave himself as the true bread which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And I want to follow him. I'm going to do things his way. I want to see it all very differently. I invite you to see this bread and this cup differently this morning. These are not mere elements that we celebrate something. It's not a ritual that we perform once a month. But this is, again, our moment to participate in something that followers of Jesus have participated in for 2,000 years. We have taken together unleavened bread to remind us of the sinless Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. He could have claimed his life back. He could have grabbed his authority for himself. He has instead laid his life down that he would give it to us. We'll see this cup differently. We'll see this cup as Jesus divined it. Not merely as the fruit of the vine, but as the 
blood shed by him, the blood of the new covenant given for us for the forgiveness of our sins, will participate in this cup declaring again that my sins are forgiven because Jesus died in my place. See it differently. See it that way. If you're with us this morning and you're not sure if you've really seen it that way before, you're not sure if you've really trusted Christ as your Savior before, I invite you to do that now. We're going to have just a moment of uh, instrumental music, some choir.